Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Thanks for hearing episode 57 of our humble little podcast. And also thank you if you've taken the time to give us a review in iTunes, a five-star review. Apple Podcasts, of course, is what they call it on the phone these days, and the iPad and the iPod Touch. It really does make a difference. I realize it takes some time out of your day, so I'm grateful that you've done it. Thanks so much. When you get a group of blind people together who are remotely interested in technology and who are of a certain age, it is quite interesting to hear about the exploits, the things they got up to with the phone. Long before we had the ability to play with computers and eye things and other smart devices, a lot of blind people were fooling with the phone and learning about the idiosyncrasies of our respective telephone networks. And it does seem to be a global thing, you know, blind people and phones. And I read a book a few years ago called Exploding the Phone, and I learned that somebody that I had been in contact with for well over 20 years had a very colourful and somewhat murky past. He was what they called a phone freak and a pretty major phone freak at that, using nothing but a couple of tape players and a Farfisa organ. Crazy stuff. So I said to Jim Fettgather, why don't we get you on the Blindside podcast and have a good old chinwag about phone freaking? And that's what we're going to do a little bit later in this podcast. It should be a lot of fun. Also, I'm going to talk in a minute about the controversial decision that Apple has made to change the way that the actions rotor behaves in iOS 11's email. Many of us thought it was a bug. It turns out not to be a bug. I'll tell you why I believe it's important and comment further on some of the reaction that I've received to my blog post, which I published on the Mosin Consulting website on Friday afternoon, New Zealand's time. Before we get to all of that, though, if you think that you would like to do a podcast like this one or better than this one or different from this one in every respect, but you'd like to do a podcast, hopefully you'll be pleased to know that the Mosin Consulting podcast course that we ran throughout September is now available for purchase as a series of recorded archives. It's an MP3 series in a zip file, and you also get an HTML page full of resources pertaining to podcasting. The course is called Unleash Your Inner Podcast, and it's available as is without any support because the support was available for those who took the course, paid a little bit extra, joined our community as we supported each other through the course. So what you get now is simply an archive of those webinars, but we do tidy them up. So we've taken out all the administrivia, we've taken out chit chat that may not be relevant. So you do get a lot of material. You don't have to fast forward through irrelevant things. And it runs a little under eight hours. And the cost of that is $60. If you would like to learn more about Unleash Your Inner Podcast, then head on over to mosen.org slash podcasting. That's M-O-S-E-N dot org slash podcasting. And you can consider taking this course, even if you have done nothing with audio before. If you don't own a decent microphone, if you've never downloaded an audio editor package before, then we take you through every step of the way, the equipment you need, the software that you should consider, and of course, all the way to getting your podcast available for distribution if you already run a podcast, then many of our participants found something for them as well. Tools that can make their podcast better. One of our participants learned how to get their podcast listed on iTunes. So 
Even if you are doing this podcasting like now, there's bound to be something that you'll find useful. So that URL to look at the course, make a purchase, and remember when you purchase from Mosin Consulting, you get to download what you buy right away. It's mosin.org slash podcasting. mosin.org slash podcasting. Reminiscing, we're going to be doing a bit of that in the podcast today. Back in 2003, I believe it was, I got my first fully accessible phone. It was a Nokia 6600 running Talks, and I just could not believe how cool that was to go through all of the procedures involved in getting Talks on the phone and then turning it on and finding that I could actually move through the menus and have speech throughout the process. I could send text messages without having to cable my phone to my PC and use Nokia PC Suite, which is actually what I used to do because I was so keen to send text messages. Talks was one heck of a breakthrough. And then there was Mobile Speak, and there were other options. And so I created an email list called the Accessible Phones Discussion List, Blind Phones for short. And it was a comparison list. It was one place you could go, not for support for a particular product, but to compare which screen reader worked best under this particular situation? What were the pros and cons of going with a particular kind of phone? And then I got very busy with traveling around the world and I found it difficult to moderate the list. In those days, mobile data was a lot more expensive when you were roaming and I was roaming a lot of the time. And so I reluctantly discontinued the blind phones list. And now I've brought it back. We're going to be taking an in-depth look on the blind side in a few weeks' time at the Samsung Galaxy S8, which I've recently purchased to assist with uh, accessibility evaluation work that we do at Mosin Consulting. And so I thought it would be useful to do a podcast on the Galaxy S8. So that is coming. And I thought we do need one place where you can go and have hopefully a respectful discussion about the relative merits of different platforms, different phones, different screen readers. Is it better to have an iPhone 8 or an iPhone 10? Is it better to have a Samsung Galaxy or a Google Pixel? What are the relative merits of iOS versus TalkBack? And so the Blind Phones list is back. If you would like to join, a link to the Blind Phones subscribe page is in the show notes, but it's a pretty easy link to remember. It is groups.io slash g slash blind phones that's groups.io slash the letter g slash blind phones the robust discussion has already begun we look forward to you being a part of it our place our issues the blind side with jonathan mosen on friday afternoon new zealand time that's thursday evening in the united states I published a blog post called Cupertino, We Have a Design Problem. And I published this post after a lot of thought and after learning definitively that an issue that many of us thought had to be a bug in iOS 11 and would be ironed out was in fact not a bug. There are some serious accessibility issues in iOS 11 and unfortunately this has become a pattern over the years where in my view there are issues that are released that affect blind people that would not be considered acceptable if they affected sighted people. For example, we have an issue with Braille input at the moment that is quite serious. And in my book, iOS 11 Without the Eye, I make it very clear that I applaud what Apple has done with Braille in iOS 11, or at least what they're trying to do. 
the ability to configure every key that your Braille display has and the functions that it performs, that's absolutely brilliant. Also, so is the effort to get rid of some of the translation anomalies that have plagued Apple Braille for a long time. Unfortunately, it is half-baked. There are some serious problems, and if you're deaf-blind, if Braille input is your only option, it's a very serious matter indeed. There are other less serious but still significant issues relating to the deletion of messages from the Messages app using the Actions Rotor, Focus and Cover Sheet, the speaking of notifications when the phone wakes up, and a number of other issues as well. So my view was that what was going on with the Actions Rotor in Mail in iOS 11 had to be one of those bugs. Now we know definitively it is not a bug. Apple actually considers this a feature, and that's why I wrote the blog post. Let me explain why this is important and exactly what the issue is. In the Actions Rotor, there is always a default action. So when you flick up and down in iOS, you hear a particular option, and then your voiceover speech will say default. And so you know that unless you take any other action, double tapping will always activate that one. It's a very important user interface paradigm, and it is followed pretty consistently throughout iOS. Now, an exception did creep in with iOS 10, and that exception was when you were closing tabs in the list of open tabs in Safari. What happens there, and it still happens now, is that if you flick up to delete and you double tap, and then you want to go to another tab, unless you navigate back to open, even though VoiceOver says open is the default, you will close a tab. I don't know who in Apple thinks that just because you closed one tab, you want to close all tabs, particularly when there is an easy way to close all tabs in Safari. It is, in my view, a poor user interface choice, particularly since, with the exception of the App Switcher, where it works the same way, in most other apps, double tapping activates the default action, as you would expect. Default means default. And so unless you take another action, the default action should always be performed. In the current shipping version of iOS 11, the Mail app really is a mess in terms of the way that it works with the Actions Rotor. When you flick up to delete, you can go ahead and delete a message if focuses on another message, double tapping will delete that one. It will not open, even though iOS continues to say that open is the default. However, if you encounter a thread, so you've stopped navigating through individual messages, and you are now getting to a thread of messages, it loses the plot and goes back to opening again. Now, some of these anomalies are being fixed in iOS 11.1, which is in public beta at the moment. Based on changed behavior in iOS 11.1 and also direct feedback that some users who have complained about this have received from Apple Accessibility, this issue is not a bug. It is definitely a feature. It is definitely a user design change. And it's a feature that I disagree with. And I want to explain why. Because it is a difficult sell. I accept that. If you are listening to this podcast on your iPhone or your iPad, you're pretty tech savvy. You've been able to download an app or configure the built-in Apple Podcasts app, and you've been able to subscribe to this podcast, and that's great. And so you may well be saying, what the heck is all this fuss about? Get over it. It's a change. We'll all adapt to it. The issue is 
that not everybody is as tech savvy as you are or as we are. Not everybody finds this stuff intuitive. And I know this because I do a lot of training with people who pay me to try and help them make sense of their iPhone. They see the promise that these devices hold, but they really do struggle to get many basic tasks done. Now, when we're teaching folks to use this stuff, it helps if there's consistency about the user interface. And so we can say to people, when you double tap, you will activate what's known as the default action. If you're not sure what the default action is, well, it's usually activate, but you can verify that by flicking up and down and the actions rotor speaks the word default. That means that whenever you double tap, unless you have taken another action first, so unless you have flicked up or down, double tapping will always, always activate the default option. Very simple, very straightforward. Now with Safari tabs in iOS 10 and the app switcher, and now Mail in iOS 11, Apple is breaking that user paradigm and making the user interface unnecessarily cumbersome and complex. And many people are finding that they are deleting important mail that they expected they would be opening. Sometimes they're opening mail that they actually wanted to delete. And it's wasting a lot of time because they can't be absolutely sure what the actions rotor is going to do. So now they're flicking up and down and up and down again to make sure they really are on the rotor item that they think they are before they perform the action. To illustrate this in another context that may help make the point, I want to thank fellow iOS user Seekard Weitzel, who published this to another email list. And I thought, what a great analogy. So this is his Imagine that you're using your email client on your PC, Microsoft Outlook. For the longest time, you know that when you press enter, you open a message and you read that message and you press control D to delete it. And then you're back in your inbox. Now imagine that you get pushed one of those regular Office 365 updates that Microsoft likes to push these days if you're an Office 365 subscriber. Imagine that all of a sudden, out of the blue, you press enter, okay, the message opens, and then you press control D to delete the message. Then another message comes up and you press enter. But instead of opening the message, like enter has always done because it performs the default action, if you will, Microsoft has decided in its wisdom that enter will activate the last thing that you did, not the default, and delete the message. So when you press enter, instead of opening it, your message is gone. Do you think that would be acceptable? I don't, and I don't think it's acceptable on the iPhone either. There is, of course, an argument that there is an efficiency gain to be had by just being able to double tap and delete, delete, delete when there are messages that you don't want. But the reality is there's already a way to do that if that's what you prefer to do. You can double tap edit and delete that way. As anyone who reads my posts and listens to this podcast knows, I'm a huge fan of the contribution that Apple has made to this space. And I've demonstrated my admiration for what Apple has done by putting my money where my mouth is. And we have a number of Apple devices here and I continue to update them on a regular basis for training purposes. And yet I have seen messages on various forums accusing me of Apple bashing. And I think this is a sad commentary on the nature of discourse, particularly in American society, I have to say. And I don't mean that in any offensive way, but it seems that American 
conversations have become so polarized that something is considered all good or all bad a lot of the time. Now, that's not the way that everybody thinks, but it is the way an increasing number of people seem to think. Just because I disagree with this particular decision that Apple has made, that doesn't make me think that Apple is all bad. And I believe that we are entitled as paying customers to disagree with a particular user interface choice that Apple has made. That doesn't make us Apple bashers, particularly if we write these things in a constructive way and articulate our position as clearly as we can, as I did in my blog. Another logical fallacy we've been dealing with is that all change equals innovation. So people are saying, this change is innovative, let's not fight it, let's embrace it. So let's do another analogy. Let's say that iOS 11 came out, and there was a feature for sighted people, which said that after you had deleted an email, tapping the next email would cause it to be deleted too. Now, you may not know how a sighted person uses iOS, but when you tap on something, it opens it. Do you think that the millions and millions of iPhone users who were sighted would accept seeing their emails being sent to the trash in this bizarre, unorthodox way and just say, oh, it's innovative, we'll retrain our brains? (laughs) I don't think so. I'm sure this change was made by someone with the best of intentions, but it is muddying the waters in terms of the user interface paradigm. I do not believe for a minute that the tech press in the sighted community would not be full of outrage if a similar user interface change was made that benefited or affected them. The other interesting bit of feedback I've seen going around on social media and on email lists is, Blind people whining. Blind people are always whining. And this feedback has come from other blind people. You know what? That is actually all about ableism in our midst. One of the things that inspired me to write my blog post was a really thorough article. And I linked to this from my original blog post. There was an article by a design expert called Ryan Lau. He's a sighted person. It's nothing to do with voiceover accessibility. And he makes the point that in his view, there are numerous design inconsistencies with iOS 11. Now, is he a whiner or do we only call blind people whiners? If he's able to sit down and make a pretty cogent and articulate case, in my view, that Apple really does have some design issues going on with iOS 11, why can't a blind person comment specifically on blindness-related issues without being accused of whining? Other criticism that I've encountered in the last few days relates to the fact that I made mention of iOS 11.1 public beta and how I should be reported to Apple for breaching their non-disclosure agreement. I could fill my blog, I could fill the new blind phones email list that I've just established with post after post after post from credible sources such as CNET, iLounge, 9to5Mac, Apple Insider, Bloomberg, and the Wall Street Journal, all of whom in the last week have written articles about iOS 11.1 public beta. I have tweeted a link about the new music player in Watch OS 4. I didn't get a single person complaining to me 
or to the best of my knowledge, complaining to the source of that article about the link and the article relating to talking about that watchOS 4 feature that is not available yet. It's actually in the next beta. I guess it's 4.1 of watchOS. So if all of these sources can talk about not a bug, but a design feature, let's bear in mind we have had confirmation from Apple now that this is not a bug. This is a design decision that they have taken. If everybody else is able to talk about these new features and design decisions in iOS 11.1, why are blind people somehow exempt from being able to do the same thing, particularly when I think we have a duty to talk about this? I think we have a duty as a community, particularly those of us who are tech savvy and have some empathy for people who do struggle to write to Apple and say, we realize you meant well, but you're confusing the heck out of people with this feature that we first thought was a bug. Now we know that it's a feature. Please change it back. And finally, I've received some criticism from people who say we should be grateful for whatever Apple gives us. And if we rock the boat too much, then Apple will take it all away and not develop voiceover anymore. When I think of the amount of money that I have spent or my business has spent on Apple devices since 2009, it's pretty staggering and sobering, actually. Not to mention that there are many blind people for whom purchasing an iPhone is a major sacrifice. These are people on fixed income. These are people who are unemployed. These are people who really have to give things up to get an iPhone. It is often said that Apple is not an assistive technology company, and I couldn't disagree more with that. Apple is an assistive technology company, and they became an assistive technology company the moment they began developing screen readers, or for that matter, any other accommodation for people with disabilities. Just because Apple does other things, that doesn't mean they are not an assistive technology company. And we need to hold Apple to account as a screen reader company in the same way that we would hold any other screen reader company to account. So that has addressed some of the feedback that I've received. I have to say I've been delighted that probably about 90% of the feedback that I've received have said thank you for pointing this out. And I also do want to say thank you to the team at AppleVis who did tweet out my blog post on this issue. And the team at Applevis have said, look, this had to be said. This is a very serious issue. If you understand the importance of this point, then I urge you to take the time to send a respectful message to accessibility at apple.com and ask them to reverse this in time for the 11.1 release. Remember, the people that you're writing to are not the product managers. They're not the engineers. They didn't make this decision. So I hope you'll be able to ask for the reversal in a respectful way, but indicate how important you believe this to be. I believe we can see this changed back. And if Apple is interested in doing the right thing, they will change it back. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. Get a bunch of blind people in a room from anywhere in the world, and it seems that as kids or young adults, many of us used to play with the telephone. This is before the days of assistive technology and computers. We had to do something, and it was ham radio and telephones that seemed to keep a lot of us busy. Well, a few years ago, 
on a recommendation of a Mosin Explosion listener, I read a book called Exploding the Phone. And what I discovered in that book was that people I had corresponded with over the years who were blind were actually legends and quite naughty in some cases. Phone freaking, it was called. And somebody who was mentioned in this book who I have corresponded with periodically over the years is Jim Fetgather. And I thought we should get Jim on the blind side and have a bit of a chinwag about phone freaking and those good old days. So, Jim, it is really great. Uh, we, we don't even need to make a long distance phone call to do this anymore. Not anymore. It's uh, long distance used to be obviously incredibly expensive. And now it's we take it for granted. And that was one of the motivators, right? The fact that it was so expensive to talk to anyone on the phone, apart from the technical challenge. So it seems like, you know, in the DX world, they have DXs and shortwave listeners. And the shortwave listeners enjoyed listening to the programs. And the DXs enjoyed the challenge of finding distant stations. And so for some people, there was the motivation of talking to a girlfriend on the other side of the country. But for others, it was just playing with it, finding out how it worked, really getting inside the system. Well, you know, and that's right, because once the novelty of making free calls kind of wore off, well, now anybody could do that because it was fairly simple to do. Um, there were many ways to do it. But then exploring the system, figuring out uh, what worked, what didn't, and its vulnerabilities, that was the challenge and kind of the fun part, really. How did you get into this? When was the first time you started to discover that you could do behind-the-scenes things to the telephone system? Even in the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, I, we would call radio stations, and we discovered that we could talk between the busy signals. So people would just you get 20 or 30 people on a party line and actually speak, hello, beep, there, beep, you know, and, and they would do that. So we did that a lot. It was kind of a precursor to the phone freak uh, era, but but uh, I went to a summer camp. I was lucky enough to go to a summer camp from San Jose, where I lived, down to Southern California. And I met a lot of people who were doing all kinds of things with the phone. And you followed up with that? You They, they taught you some tricks? A couple of things. Uh, one of the basic things was every, every phone exchange in those days had what they call a loop around, where... You would call one number, I would call an adjacent number in the same exchange, and all of a sudden we would talk, and we could be from anywhere in the country. So the phone freaks discovered these loop-arounds, and the phone company had a, 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 a purpose for them, a legitimate purpose was to test the quality of the trunks and so forth. So you would wait and wait, and somebody would come on, and pretty soon you'd be talking to another phone freak anywhere in the country. How did you discover those numbers? I guess, what, just dialing numbers at, at random? Well, what's funny was they were always the same. So once you discovered them in one area code, they would always end with the same four numbers. Yeah. See, you guys had a much more elaborate system than we had in New Zealand, but we had similar numbers. I mean, there, there were test numbers you could dial that would make the phone ring back. Actually, there were different numbers you could dial that made the phone ring back in different patterns. And there were also test numbers where you could dial and get different kinds of weird tones and stuff like that. But I'm not aware that we had this business that you guys did where you could call a number. Another popular trick was to call a number that wasn't in service and you'd hear your call cannot be completed as dialed but that recording was so faint 
that it allowed people to call a number like that, just call the same number and all talk to one another. Why did that happen? What, what, what was the technology that meant that that was actually possible? Well, there were so many vulnerabilities in, in the Bell system when, in AT&T before the breakup in 1984 because all of the signaling they used, all of the tones, all of the testing went across on the same lines as the audio calls. And so that made the system totally vulnerable to so many different things, including these weird anomalies where you could talk over busy signals or talk over a disconnected number. There is a suggestion, I think, that AT&T really didn't invest in their network very well, that a lot of these vulnerabilities could have been patched a long time before they were, but they were cheapskates. Well, they were, essentially. And, and really, I mean, it should have never happened, but... Uh, and the things that they left vulnerable were absolutely phenomenal because once you got into their network, what you could do was simply amazing. And what could you do? I mean, I, I've, I've been reading again in preparation for us talking, the Exploding the Phone book, and there's this wonderful story about how one particular person stumbled upon the whole phone freaking thing with an ad that was in one of the Boston newspapers and it all just sort of developed from there. But they were talking about the, the inward operator numbers that you could call. And once you got hold of one of those secret inbound operator numbers that you weren't supposed to even be able to dial externally, then they could put you through to anywhere. They could put you through to anywhere, and they could even put you through to a call already in progress. If you impersonated a telephone company employee and said you needed to do an emergency interrupt on uh, a specific number uh, through the inward operator, they would go ahead and break in, patch you through. Uh, of course, you had to sound very official, which we you know, have, did a lot of practice doing that. And then we would have all kinds of fun. That'd be pretty attractive for a teenager who wanted to cut in on a, a call to a girl that he really liked, right? Well, exactly. And, and what we did was um, back in the 19, late 1960s and early 70s, uh, one of the radio baseball networks owned by Charlie Finley was the Oakland A's radio network. And he was kind of known for being a little bit cheap. So his network, his entire baseball radio network, was carried on the phone lines. His, his network was done over the phone. And we <laughs> I know this is going, go on. <laughs> well, yeah, so we would break into his network constantly and play sound effects, dogs barking, animals, uh, and just <laughs> disrupt, disrupt the uh, Oakland A's games up and down the line uh, until finally he did. He switched the next year to regular network broadcast lines because, well, we basically that's what we wanted him to do. But because that would give you better audio quality as a listener. Exactly. For, and for everyone in Northern California. Right, right. So you did the world a favor. Very good. <laughs> what, what motivated you about doing it then? I mean, wh why did you persist with it? Well, it was, it was so interesting because um, um, myself and a, and a friend uh, by the name of, who's also in Exploding the, the Phone uh, book by the name of Denny, we started figuring out that Many people were building blue boxes now, and they were the boxes that you could build that would produce these tones. 
But I did not have the technological prowess or ability to do that. So I used a Farfisa portable organ. Uh, the same organ, by the way, that was played by uh, The Doors, so the song Light My Fire, same exact. And so I would call these numbers and I could, I could hear the tones. I, I, I'm, I'm able to distinguish tones. So I was able to, instead of having blue boxes, I just played them on the organ. And that's when Denny got a hold of this fellow, John Draper, who's also in the book, whose name is Captain Crunch. He came over and he could not believe what we were showing him, that you could, you know, call anywhere in the world and do all these things. And Captain Crunch did have the ability then to build these blue boxes. And he kept, he kept building them smaller and smaller and smaller. And he would come over and be amazed at how small they were. So that, that was his end of the whole deal, the, the, the building of the blue boxes. Yeah, Captain Crunch, he was probably the most notorious or famous of all the phone freaks, right? Oh, there's no question. It was kind of funny, too, because at the same exact time, he was cavorting around with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak up in Berkeley. Now, we didn't know this at the time, which is kind of a shame, but but they, of course, were somewhat uh, infamous, I guess you could say. And it's in the Steve Jobs biography and also in Wozniak's book called I Was. Many of them say that they would have never started Apple Computer had they not gotten involved with building these blue boxes. Yeah, and of course, conversely, had they got busted for building those blue boxes, we might not be using an iPhone today. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. And um, so Captain Crunch would visit me and Denny, and then he would drive his Volkswagen bus up to Berkeley and visit with uh, Jobs and Wozniak. So um, it was amazing. But... So I, but but I was happy. I didn't need the uh, you know the blue box. I was perfectly happy with um, the portable organ and putting tones on cassette tapes. And I would make calls for people. And all of a sudden, I was in college, and lines would form behind the payphone. Twenty, thirty people waiting to make phone calls. I didn't. I didn't need money. I didn't expect to be paid. Uh, all I wanted was beer and pizza. <laughs> when. We talk about the way that you could do this. At the heart of it is the MF tones, right? Multi-frequency. And people will be aware of the DTMF tones, which they can still hear when they dial in the phone app of their phone or they use a landline phone. What was the difference between DTMF and MF that you were using to do all these network things and trick the network into doing things? So, yeah, the, uh, they are totally a different set of tones, uh, completely different, um, because they didn't want to have any crossover between the tones. The uh, MF, or multi-frequency tones, that w were used to govern the long distance, and they were published. I mean, you could, you could search in the library and find this information, and, um, but they were, in fact, you're exactly right. They were totally different tones, because obviously they, they wanted no crossover and nothing to... Uh, interfere with the belt with the AT&T network. And what could you make those tones do? I mean, what did the specification allow somebody who understood how to generate those frequencies? What could you do with them? Well, so obviously you could make calls, and that was one thing that was fun to do. You could call overseas, and you could, depending on which tones you played, you could route your call via satellite or via the underwater cable to Europe. So we would call... Um, 
pay phones at train stations in London and just talk with people who ever answered the phone. Or we would sometimes call 2SM in Sydney, Australia. They would actually put us on the air. They were amazed to hear from us. <laughs> Why did you pick on 2SM in Australia? <laughs> well, well, all of these radio stations at the time had listened. They had secret numbers where sponsors and advertisers could call in. So we collected these numbers. We started calling around and getting some of these numbers so that we could call in and listen to 2SM because there was no way, there was no internet, obviously. So uh, owners and advertisers needed a way to listen to these radio stations. So just about every station in the country had uh, an unpublished number to be able to listen to the, the, uh, the radio feed. We just loved listening to 2SM at the time. I'm, I was kind of a news junkie even back then. So I would listen to WABC in New York or... And, of course, you wouldn't do it if you had to pay for it, but but uh, we were able to do that. And uh, I did this all from the uh, unwitting uh, knowledge of uh, my parents' kitchen at the time. They had no idea what was going on. I was connecting all these wires and crazy gadgets to the phone. They had no idea. So they didn't know that you were – I mean, this this was not a legal thing that you were doing, right? It was actually some sort of offense to fool with the phone network like this. This was a um, a pretty serious offense, actually. Um, both making these. Out- I hope the statute of limitations has expired by now, or something. I I believe it has. Otherwise, oh. uh, this interview would not have been possible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, okay. and, and, and of course, uh, the author of the book too. He said, "You don't mind using your real name, do you?" And I said, "Well, I don't. As long as my employer doesn't read it, I don't care." How did you get away with that, though? Because. All of that time, you must have been playing with the phone and just sitting there with the phone and dialing numbers at random, all this kind of stuff. It took three or four years for the phone company to finally uh, start cracking down on people. But, you know, in those three or four years, we would do some crazy things like um, a lot. A lot. We did a lot of stuff from pay phones. So you could log on to the network, you know, from a pay phone, especially if you had a Captain Crunch whistle. And recordings, and we would call the payphone next door, but we would use tones to go through what, what were called long-distance tandems. So we would route the call through White Plains, New York, and then maybe London, and then Amsterdam, and maybe over to Moscow and back to the Bay Area so that you could speak. And there would literally be a 20-second delay before you heard the voice on the, on the other end on the two payphones right next door. Yes, I was going to say there must have been incredible latency in those days doing that. There'd be incredible oh, yeah. latency now. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, and we were just trying to see how many tandems we could go through, you know, to see and before the call would degrade, uh, to see how many cities we could stack um, and how, mu- how long of a delay we could have to be able to try and, and make a call from these two adjacent payphones. So what happened when you were finally caught up with? I mean, what, what, how did it go down? Well, it wasn't pretty. Um, so uh, another thing we used to be able to do is that you could, for like a dollar and a half, you could buy parts from Radio Shack where you could connect a resistor to your phone and anybody that called you would not be charged for the call. So and it raised a little suspicion because my dad's uh, at the time my father's uh, sales rep would call him and they said well, we're not we're not being billed for these calls what's going on so i i had lots of explaining to do <laughs> that's right because when a call picked up on a long distance call there was a distinctive 
sound that was generated wasn't there and that that was the sound that started the charging right and so if you uh, deviated the current just enough then you could alleviate that whole process and the phone company billing equipment never kicked in and uh, you could have people call you from anywhere nifty nifty <laughs> and, and is that is that what did you in in the end what caused the authorities to catch up with you finally that was part of it. That was part of it. Actually, they were very friendly, and they gave me several warnings. They came to the house, and they said, you know, this is, you, uh, you have to quit doing this. And I was pretty much addicted to the hobby. It was very difficult to stop doing it. So I would stop for a while and start in again. And then after about the third time, this is all detailed in a great uh, article in um, Oh, what was it? Well, Esquire magazine. There was a big article in 1971 that is also uh, referenced in that book. So they finally came to my place with a search warrant. And uh, if I'd been quick on my feet, I would have said, well, wait a minute, I can't read that. You're going to have to give that to me in an accessible format. <laughs> you know, I'm 18 years old. I don't know from nothing, you know, so. Yeah. So, so they, they took some tapes and some electronic equipment um, as I said, I didn't have any blue boxes, but I did have plenty of these what we call mutes where you could prevent people from um, um, being charged. And they took them down and they uh, set a, a court date, and I did have a, a court date. Fortunately, back then, the uh, age of adulthood was, was 21, not 18. And then I was able to, with the help of my folks, hire a... Uh, Competent attorney and get my record expunged, and that's why I quit, you know quit messing around with the stuff. So you did manage to wean yourself off it. I did. Many people did not, and uh, I think, for example, Captain Crunch did a little time in a federal facility, um, but he just wouldn't quit doing it. He, you know, he would drive around and keep building these blue boxes, and um, so unfortunately. Now, Captain Crunch, he discovered by accident, didn't he, that the whistle that you got in a box of Captain Crunch cereal just happened to trigger. What did it actually trigger in the phone system, that whistle? So it made it so that you could disconnect the current call that you were on. Let's say you call the toll-free number, and that's pretty much the way it worked. Unless you were on a step-by-step system, then there was an even easier way. But you would call a major hotel chain, and before they answered, you would whistle with Captain Crunch, the Captain Crunch whistle, which was 2,600 cycles, a seventh octave E. <laughs> okay, yep. Yeah, and so I would, you know, and I could play that on, on the organ as well. That would be a part of the tapes that I made. And <laughs> so, so then, once you were disconnected from the hotel, you had the, you had the AT&T entire network at your disposal, anywhere in the world, you could do anything. You could call uh, locally next door, Australia, London. Um, you could call these inward numbers and be a part of other conversations. You could call phone company conference lines that you could only get through uh, via using the MF tones. These days, if you were doing some sort of hobby There'd be so many ways that you could share information about it. You know, you could set up a private WhatsApp group or, you know, WeChat or whatever you want. How was it? What was your primary mean? I guess the phone was it. Was your was the phone itself your primary means of sharing information between one another? Pretty much. But uh, many of us were in uh, the Bay Area. So we would get together at a coffee shop or a restaurant. Um, 
we would uh, take trips up to the San Francisco airport so we could. So you could imagine 10 or 15 blind folks standing at payphones, whistling into payphones at the San Francisco airport. The trunks worked that way, where you could whistle the numbers that you wanted to call instead of using the MF tones. So you've got perfect pitch? Um, apparently, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So that's a huge advantage then, a blind phone freaky with perfect pitch. <laughs> so, so yeah, right. So we would get together in person, but also many of the uh, – all of the information exchanges were certainly done over the phone, uh, whether one-on-one or via these uh, – just there were lots and lots of conference numbers and you get eight or 10 people or 12 people on a conference and trade information. And uh, many of them, uh, as I say, were very well known, very highly profiled in that book. Mm. How would you know when to get together, though? Or would you just sort of dial a number and just hang around until other people joined you? Or was it a bit more structured than that? A, a little bit structured. I mean, you could pretty much count on it every night. Um, every night, like between eight p.m. and 3 a.m., people would be on these conference lines. And you could dial in or not, and you could pretty much be assured that there was always somebody there, whether it was, uh, we call them Bill from New York or Joe from Florida, um, all of these people who, some of them had anonymous names, but um, many of us used our real names, so we weren't that worried about it. But there was always someone there to talk with and to trade information. What about letting people into the fold and knowing who you could trust? Because I imagine that if somebody was just discovering this and maybe they found by accident that you could do a few things or like you, they went to a summer camp and people told them about it, it would be like a whole new world opening up. But then you've got to be careful there's nobody there who is a snitch, right, and who's going to uh, report you all to the authorities. Well, and there were certainly many rumors of people reporting people, you know, especially when you're teenagers, uh, uh, rumors are rampant, and that's, you know, we don't know what was true back then really and what wasn't, but there were certainly people who were suspect, and uh, many people thought that they were, you know, turning other people in, and we never really found out. But you're right, you had to be really careful. And even the, the, the people I knew in uh, in high school, they knew what I, were, they knew what I was doing. Um, in fact, my last year of high school, I was banned from using the payphone because they <laughs> they caught on to what, I, what was going on. Yeah, I'll tell you something interesting. Over here, our old rotary dial system was in reverse from most other countries. And so if you wanted to dial the number nine, it was one pulse, and the number one was nine pulses. I never really got to the bottom of why that was, except I think there's an old story about war surplus phones that have been mismanufactured in Britain and we got them or something like that. I don't know whether that's true or not. Maybe they just thought we should have the reverse system because people think we're upside down in New Zealand or something. But I worked out that you could go to a payphone and we had the same system as Britain. I don't know how familiar you are with that, where you would put coins in a slot and then uh, pressing button A would unmute the microphone and drop the coins into the slot and pressing button B would give you the money back if the call didn't answer. So that's all good. But if you didn't put coins in the slot, there were certain free numbers you could call, like the operator. And um, what I worked out was that you could actually just tap the switch hook on which the phone hung up very quickly to emulate the pulses from the rotary dial phone. And that way you could make free calls because no money had gone in the slot and um, used to make me quite popular at school being able to do this, you know, because kids could call 
home, you know, in another city, and uh, I could sit there and tap out the pulses for them rapidly enough to to make that happen. So <laughs> that is cool. brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant that you figure that out. It would have given you some popularity, right? That you could help kids make recalls like this. Yeah, I was fairly well known, and and people would would ask me to make calls, and like I said, I. I would do it for free rides or, you know, get rides places. A couple of people gave me rides all over the state of California, actually, for making calls for them uh, or up to, up to Reno, Lake Tahoe area. So it was it was a pretty amazing time because I just I had my little I had two cassette recorders so I could edit and make recordings for any phone number that anybody ever wanted to dial. And I would just use two cassette recorders with two pause buttons and Put together the number and there we go. There will be some people, I guess, who use this for malicious purposes. I mean, it sounds like you were just really enjoying the challenge of working out the system and, and what it could do. And But I imagine there must have been some people who perhaps were uh, not using it for good. Well, certainly the phone company, uh, in its original investigation, they thought we were a part of a uh, bookmaking gang. I mean, they, you know, they thought we were exchanging, you know, big money. Um, and we, we were just kids playing with the phone. And, but that's not what they thought, at least at first. What about the blindness angle? Because I imagine that there must have been some sensitivity potentially about prosecuting poor little blind kids who were just having fun with the phone. Well, I think that was part of it. And I think that was probably why I received uh, three or four warnings before they finally did have to step in and do something. When I read the book, Exploding the Phone, I recognized a number of names, some of whom are no longer with us. But I was just staggered at the number of names I did actually recognize going all the way back to my bulletin board days in the 80s. Can you tell us about a few other blind people who have outed themselves, who um, who were involved in this along with you? Well, certainly there's quite a few. Uh, some of them, you know, it's funny, some of them never got into computers at all. Uh, our friend from San Jose never developed an interest or proclivity or any kind of um, engagement at all into working with any kind of technology. Yet he was one of the most brilliant phone freaks there were. Um, another gentleman from Seattle has turned into a survivalist and lives in the mountains of Washington, but, you know, deep within the, the, the mountains. Um, so some of these folks have, you know, gone into seclusion. Others have disappeared. And so it's really kind of hard to know where everyone went. Mm. One person who I do remember who was quite a character was Tandy Way, who is no longer with us now. But uh, Tandy Way used to give little main menu contributions when I was doing that on ACB radio. And he, he would actually call uh, into Blindline when the only way to do so was to call a New Zealand number. I guess he was paying for it by then because it was 1999. <laughs> but uh, so there's there's somebody who, who has a long history of sort of ham radio and things in the blind community. And I was quite interested to read that he was involved in all this. Yeah, I do remember that name. And though I never, at least I don't think I ever personally, but uh, um, uh, many people who obviously were fascinated and interested in, in telephones and technology went on to become equally as fascinated with uh, the more contemporary technology that we use today. 
When did they start patching the holes and replacing the system that gave you all of this power and, and, and was the source of so much fun? So it, 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 when it started happening, it happened pretty fast. You had to go to a very small town. And even up until the late 70s, early 80s, if you went to the right places that had these independent phone companies, you could still get onto their tandems, make free calls, have a lot of fun. But in all your major cities, starting in about 1973 to 74, they pretty much closed all the loopholes. Are there things that you can do now with the phone system as it stands in 2017 that, uh, that are similar, or is, it pre- is, that, is that era pretty much over now? I'm pretty certain that it's over. You know, so I haven't had a landline in like uh, 13 years. We just haven't felt the need for it. But um, I don't know of anything that you could do. It's really fun to talk about the phone stuff. Is there anything about the uh, the, the phone days that we haven't covered in terms of, of, of tasks that you would get done or tricks that you would get done? Well, one thing that we did one time was we figured out a way. There was a radio station and there was a fellow debuting a talk show. So he was so excited. And so it was a two-hour talk show, but we figured out a way to tie up the incoming lines into the station. And so we, we were standing at five payphones in a suburb of San Jose, and we had all these lines tied up. And he said, well, you know, this talk show is only going to work if, uh, if you guys call in and, and, and let's have a two-way conversation. So, but he, but no one could call in. We, we busied out the lines, and so uh, he was sweating bullets for. A while. So after one hour, we go ahead. We went ahead and gave him his, uh, gave him it back. It's amazing how blind people all around the world did all this stuff with the phone. It, do you think technology's taken the place of that? A, a kids being adventurous with iPads and uh, things. I mean, they're, they're such walled gardens these days by comparison. Though, really, I guess. Well, there's so many, you know, so many things now that, that you can do that obviously you couldn't do with the phone. And and now, of course, back then there was that feeling of, of exploration and, and discovery that you still have, of course, with, with technology today. But uh, now, it, of course, now it's pretty polished and we're always worried if we don't know the answer, we can look it up on Google, you know. But by then, in the old days, we, you it, with phones anyway – you pretty much either had to discover stuff on your own or if you were lucky, you would run on to people who maybe had part of the puzzle and then would help you out. And in a way, that must have been like currency, right? So if somehow you had stumbled upon some really cool number that did something that you weren't aware of before or some way of generating a, a, an MF uh, tone that did something really special, then... I bet you couldn't just wait to get on the call and let people know about that and share that. Oh yeah, because they were very. It would people would be excited. People would be waiting for information. And as I say, it was pretty much uh, one of these conference lines was a, a nightly get together, and you'd get eighteen or twenty people on there. And sometimes it was chaos, but for a bunch of teenagers, uh, everybody was you know uh, used pretty good decorum, and uh, so that you people communicated. Passed around loop around numbers, um, just any kind of information, payphone numbers to call uh, around the world just for fun and just all kinds of information about anything having to do with the latest and greatest phone freak techniques. Where does the name phone freak come from? And and, and for those who haven't seen it, PH is how you spell the freak. So P-H-R-E-A-K. Well, now, so there was a... um, 
One of the people, and I don't remember his moniker in the book, uh, he was from Seattle, and so he coined the phrase Phone Freaks of America, uh, and that was in the late 60s, late 60s, and so I think that's where it came from, from one of the uh, older fellows, he was probably eight or nine years older than the rest of us in Seattle, and uh, he did a lot of, made lots of recordings traveling up and down the West Coast, recorded, I guess they were real, real recordings back then, and he would stop and make recordings of payphones and let everybody listen to his uh, discoveries, and I believe he did coin that phrase. The Cold War was going on at this time, and I'm surprised that the U.S. phone system was as insecure as it was with the Cold War going on, because I imagine that people might have been a bit paranoid about what Cold War enemies might be able to do with this phone system. Well, that's right, and we knew how to call the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, and we did so. Now, we didn't really have much to talk with them about. We asked them how the weather was, and they were very polite, but they were a little suspicious after a while because, you know, they didn't really want to stay on with the phone. But you're right. That was a very uh, scary era back then and such unrest and uh, distrust in the country that, uh, yeah, you would have thought that, you know, somebody could have certainly done evil with that information. And the book Exploding the Phone, which is a very interesting and entertaining read, how did that come about and how were you contacted by the author of that book? It is pretty amazing. Back in 2010, uh, he had contacted me and he had gotten my number through, I believe, uh, Bill in New York, who was still with us back then. And he did his research over about a four-year period. Uh, I mean, he was driving around the country, talking with people, flying all over the place, uh, exhaustive research, and it did take him, uh, I'm certain, at least four years to come up with all the details and info he needed to write a, a comprehensive book about that era. So he would have started, I imagine, with someone prominent like John Draper, Captain Crunch, and eventually just be given name after name, right, and followed them all up. Is that how it worked for him? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think he did talk, uh, talk with Draper. I think Draper was... Uh, I don't know if he was in the country back then because he kind of moves around a lot still. Although I think since he's in his 80s, I'm not sure how his health is doing. But he certainly did talk with uh, with Draper and then with Bill from New York and other people. And then finally filtered down to me and we had a ball talking back and forth. The audible version of Exploding the Phone is read, I think, by Evan Doorbell, who is another prominent figure in this community. Yeah, that's right. He also has a bunch of recordings, and they may still be on the Internet. Yeah, I, I, they were when I last checked. So if that's the case, I will link to them in the show notes of the podcast. But, boy, it's fascinating to listen to all those MF tones and, and things that they were doing. Yeah, and, and he really did a, an amazing job of archiving all of that, all of those phone sounds, and, you know, from the 60s. And, uh, yeah, he was a, a very well-known and a classic well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you about this stuff. You're a legend. And when I saw your name in this book, I was I was staggered. I had no idea you had the secret past. So I thought <laughs> I thought it was great. We must get to talk to you. So I'm glad that we have. And I really appreciate you sharing your stories with us. Well, thank you. And apparently now it's no longer a secret, but that is quite all right. The uh, um, I've been enjoyed every bit of it. Thanks for listening to the Blind Side a production of Mosin Consulting. 
on the web at mosin.org.